Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Okay, thank you. Well, it's good to be with you. I was in southern Ontario last night. I was in the south of Ireland this afternoon, and now I'm in Florida. So it's nice to get around in 24 hours and be in a few different places. It was nice to hear about the work at Emmanuel. One of the young women from our area actually taught at Emmanuel with the Blooms, uh, Rebecca Hartford. Uh, she actually ended up marrying a fellow from Kansas and we lost her to Kansas when she married Jesse. And so uh, the Hartfords said to say hi to the Blooms tonight. I told them uh, you would be here and they wanted to be remembered uh, to you. That's a great story about Emmanuel. Tonight, we're looking in the book of James in chapter 2, and James talks about faith. And uh, when we think of the book of James, that's one of the topics that come to mind. It's been said that uh, Peter was the apostle of hope. His epistle uh, presents the hope of the return of Christ. Uh, John, in his epistle, his first epistle, is the apostle of love. And then James, the apostle of, of faith. In the early assembly movement, uh, there are three notable uh, men who were given titles. Uh, Darby was sometimes called the Apostle of Hope because of his emphasis on uh, the return of Christ. Uh, Chapman was called the Apostle of Love uh, because of his work in Barnstable in the south of England. And then Mueller was called the Apostle of Faith because of his uh, work in Bristol and the orphanages. I watched on YouTube this week the story. Uh, it's a half drama, half documentary, The Life of George Mueller and the work of the Ashley Down Orphanage uh, there in Bristol and Gilead Chapel. And uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful story. Very much like uh, Emmanuel Mission and how they operated and how the Lord provided if you want some entertainment uh, this coming week, uh, go to YouTube and, and uh, watch the story of, of George Mueller. There's a number of uh, documentaries, but the one I watched was part, uh, part drama as well. So it was very well done. So when we uh, come to James, he has uh, this passage in chapter 2, verse 14 to verse 26, where he specifically talks about faith, but uh, we had faith mentioned in chapter 1. Uh, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives to all men liberally and upbraids not, but let him ask in faith, uh, we read there. And then in chapter 5, uh, James mentions the prayer of faith. And so uh, sort of bookends on, on this epistle uh, to ask or pray in faith, ask in faith and pray uh, in faith. And then there are a number of promises that are found through the book that uh, are to be claimed by faith. We can count it all joy. We fall into various trials because we know God is at work. Uh, when we uh, think of the fact that he gives wisdom, he gives grace to the humble, uh, he will draw near to us, he will lift us up. And so there are promises that are to be claimed uh, by faith. Now, when we think of James and faith as well, we can go back to think of uh, Luther's 
conundrum, his problem with the book of James when he was um, studying. Uh, Luther, of course, was convicted as he was crawling up uh, steps there in Rome and recalling uh, from Romans chapter 1, the just shall live by faith. And of course, that struck him, and it's through that, uh, to a large extent, we are where we are today, that the just shall live by faith. And then when he saw what James presented, he, he struggled initially with it. In fact, he called uh, James a right straw epistle. That's S-T-R-A-W-Y, straw epistle, uh, because he didn't think it had much substance to it. And of course, his view changed as he studied, but uh, James presents the evidence of faith. He's not presenting faith as a means or a work uh, that leads to salvation, but he's presenting the evidence of faith. Now, when you think of faith, depending on a person's theological perspective, uh, there are some who would teach that uh, our view of faith puts puts works into the gospel effort. And we would say, no, faith is merely our response to what God says. Uh, there are theological positions, too, that hold that faith is a gift, that you can only exercise or have faith if you're given that faith, that we're dead in trespasses and sins, and it's only uh, if that faith is given as a gift. And so uh, Ephesians 2.8 is often quoted in that regard. It is the gift of God, but it's salvation that's the gift. It's not faith. Faith is merely uh, the response of a heart to what God uh, says. It's not a work, but it is a response. Uh, when you study faith through the New Testament, it becomes obvious it's not a gift because some had great faith, some had little faith. Uh, the Lord Jesus was surprised on two occasions at the faith some people had. Uh, and so faith is uh, response of a person to the word of God, believing and accepting what God to say. So we're saved by faith alone. It's been said that uh, though we're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. And so there's evidence. Uh, William MacDonald has a good uh, few thoughts that I want to just share uh, verbatim here for uh, before we read this passage. He looks through Romans, or he lists from Romans, the fact that we're justified by grace. Uh, chapter 324, we're justified by faith in chapter 5, verse 1, verse 9, by blood. Chapter 833, uh, justified by God. Romans 425, by power. And then here in James, justified, he says, by works. And here's what McDonald says. Grace is the principle upon which God justifies. Faith is the means by which man uh, receives it. Blood is the price which the Savior had to pay. God is the active agent in justification. Power is the proof, and works are the result. So let's read in James chapter 2 from verse 14, at the end of the chapter. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? 
Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know? Uh, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. The scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So I think as you ponder that passage, you can see why Luther perhaps had some uh, difficulties coming from where from his background to where he was uh, in conversion, and then reading this, uh, he might have struggled uh, with it. It is, in some ways, a difficult passage. One of the things we've seen about the epistle of James, it is proverb-like. Uh, he sort of presents parts of uh, subjects and, and uh, jumps a little bit like uh, the book of Proverbs, but there is a flow. And Part of the flow that we've seen is God is interested in making us mature. So in chapter one, he uses suffering, circumstances of life, and the scriptures to make us mature. And then we've seen in chapters two through five, these are the marks of maturity. So on Sunday morning, we looked at the fact that if we are prejudiced or show partiality uh, based on various uh, visible aspects, about a person, uh, we are not being mature. Uh, we are sinning, he says. We are becoming uh, judges. And so it's a mark of immaturity to be prejudiced, to prejudge, to show partiality. And so another mark of maturity is to give evidence to, uh, to faith. And so that's what James presents here, that if we are maturing in Christ, there will be a reality in our life uh, in, in the area of, of faith. So it starts with this investigation of what faith is in the first few verses from verse 14. And literally, uh, that verse or part of that verse could be rendered uh, as it is uh, in, the, in the Greek uh, literally, it's, this faith can't save him, can it? So it's really presented as a question. This, this faith can't save him, uh, can it? And so there, uh, James's point is there has to be some vitality. There has to be some life uh, to faith. Just keep your finger there, but look back at Hebrews chapter 11 for a moment to see a definition of faith. We often think of verse 1 and 2 as the definition, but they're really the demonstration of faith. The definition we find in three verbs in verse 13, Hebrews eleven thirteen. 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. And here's the first verb, we're assured of them. 
embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. So that those three words there, assured, embraced, and confessed, uh, are the essence of what faith is. It's the assurance that what God says is true, but then it's also taking it to oneself and then making it a reality, confessing it, uh, that they were strangers and pilgrims, demonstrating that faith. And so there's this threefold aspect. Some people have a surface faith and that they believe, they may even be assured, but they don't embrace it and they don't confess it. And it, so it's not a, a saving faith. I suppose in some ways uh, you could find repentance in a similar way. Uh, repentance has three parts, doesn't it? There's the mental assent where I agree with God. That's what confession means. To repent means I agree with God. But there's got to be an emotional part as well, where I have that sense of being wrong, of being sorry for what I've done. But then there's the volitional part as well. I've got to change my ways. Repentance means a turn. Some people have that. We would call that remorse. Uh, sorry they got caught, perhaps. But it takes really all three to have biblical repentance. And so here, it's these three aspects of faith that uh, prove the reality of, of faith. And so people can say, yeah, I believe, but there's got to be some evidence in life, or there's going to be some evidence in life of the Chapter two, James uses this uh, illustration that if somebody is in need and we merely say to them, be warmed and be filled. Of course, as we've thought through our study on James, there is discernment to be, to be used uh, in how we deal with people. Uh, one of the things we had to uh, learn in our time in Zambia was to discern in terms of how we gave and how much we gave and when we gave. Uh, it took some discernment uh, because of sort of the, the lifestyle and the expectations that people had from missionaries. And I think part of what Brother John expressed in the early days of Emmanuel, you see that on mission fields around the world as well, especially when there's mission stations. And so there is a, there is a place for discernment, but there is a place for compassion and evidence of faith, of works, of meeting needs. And so just to say to somebody, uh, yeah, I see you're hungry, I see you're naked. Uh, anyway, go away, be warm, be filled, and not meet that need. He says, what, what kind of faith is that? What value is that in it? In fact, uh, that type of faith without the works, it's useless at this point. And so he starts with this challenge for us. A part of our difficulty, perhaps, uh, in our culture is so much, um, apart from, say, on a reserve like where Emmanuel is, uh, so much uh, in our communities is taken care of 
government programs and so on. But we still have to be open to the, the needs and be willing to put faith into practice. If you watch the video of uh, George Mueller's story, he was to most people, as it says in the, the video, was just attending church. That was the demonstration of faith. And so when he started meeting the needs of these orphans on the streets, and he housed at one time over 2,000 orphans, uh, it was a visible demonstration of faith. Otherwise, people were, were just walking past these children. Uh, they had no hope, no future. Uh, and then George Mueller took them in, gave them a good education, gave them trade, taught them trades, and uh, their lives were totally different. And so he says, if we don't have a faith that is visible, what value is it saying that we have faith? And then he goes from that investigation of what faith is to this interrogation in verses uh, 18 and, and 19 and 20, where he talks about uh, the, the reality again of, of our faith. Uh, he quotes or he uses a phrase from Deuteronomy chapter uh, 6, verse 4. In verse 19, you believe there's one God. Well, Jewish people hold that as their statement of faith, uh, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4. And uh, he says, well, that's good. But even the demons believe that there's one God. And you have proof of that. Uh, in the lifetime of the Lord Jesus, uh, the demon demoniacs would proclaim, the demons would proclaim, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And they were in no doubt about who this one was. So they believe and they tremble. But he says, that's not enough. There's got to be something uh, with it. There was a time when I did some door-to-door uh, -door in this community that we're in now using a questionnaire and the questionnaire just asks simple uh, statements or questions about the gospel, about the person of Christ, why he came and uh, why he died on the cross. And we're in a predominantly Catholic uh, area, Northern Ontario to a large extent is, is Roman Catholic, at least nominally. And most of the people at the door answer the first five questions the same way we would. Uh, who was Jesus Christ? Why did he come? Why did he die on the cross? Uh, but when you got to the, the last question, which was the lead into the gospel, was, uh, are you sure or do you know for sure that you are going to heaven? And of course, not one of them that we interviewed at the doors could answer that in the affirmative. So they believed uh, to a point, but they, of course, had never been born again. And there was no evidence of confessing that, that they were pilgrims and strangers uh, here on earth. There was no vitality there. It was a simple belief. If you'd ask them if they are Christians, they'd say, of course, born in a Christian home, born in a Christian country, so to speak, but no real evidence of faith. And so uh, that's where James takes us. And then he uses these illustrations of Abraham and of Rahab. And uh, in a sense, it's a, it's a wonderful contrast. It would remind you of John 3 and John 4. And Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and John 3, and Samaritan woman uh, in chapter 4, a respected Jewish man and a, a, a sinful 
Gentile uh, woman, as far apart as you could uh, possibly get. And so here, Abraham and Rahab, uh, again, male and female, Jew and Gentile. And uh, James presents them uh, as examples of uh, the reality of, of faith. Cool. And when you, uh, when you look at the life of Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 6, uh, he believed God and it was accounted to him, imputed to him for righteousness. Uh, he accepted what God had to say and it was imputed to his account for righteousness. Well, here, James presents uh, the fact that he offered Isaac on the altar as the evidence of faith. And so he was justified before God in Genesis 15. But here he's justified, we might say, in the sight of man. And the reality of it seen in his offering of Isaac. And in this exercise of faith, he seemed to be a friend of God. And then Rahab is, as well. Uh, if you read in Joshua chapter 2, she professed her belief that God had given the land of Canaan to the Israelites, that they were going to conquer. She acknowledged that there's a God in heaven. But her faith was demonstrated in that she uh, saved the spies and sent them out on their way. Now, both these acts would be sinful in and of themselves, offering a son as a sacrifice and committing treason if it were not for the evidence or act of faith involved in it. And so it was faith in God that, that moved them to be obedient, to act in this way. And so the, the challenge from this passage is uh, the reality of our faith. You've probably heard it said that, you know, if it was a crime to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence in a court of law to convict you or convict me? be very sad if the case was thrown out for lack of evidence, if we could not be convicted and sentenced by evidence in our life, uh, the reality of our faith. And like I said, as, as in the culture in which we live, in some ways it's difficult to demonstrate or manifest that faith. But it's also easy to withdraw, to uh, settle into our uh, situation and just not look for the opportunities, not be involved in the lives of others. And so there has to be the exercise of faith. I mean, some of us are like the Blooms ourselves. We've been placed in situations where uh, we interact perhaps more with uh, people in need than, than others uh, perhaps have the opportunity. But you, we've got to look at our life and say, what is the reality of my faith? And of course, as we get older, we're more limited by health, by age, by many things, perhaps. But we can pray uh, for one another. And so evidence of faith. But I want to go on to chapter five and look just briefly in closing at this passage where he talks about the prayer of faith in verse 13. This is, again, in some ways, a difficult passage, but I think the context helps us. Chapter 5, verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. 
And the Lord will raise him, up, raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effect of fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. It did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. And so in here we have the prayer of faith, and there's a promise, an absolute, that's associated with it. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Well, lots of believers get sick, and people pray uh, for them. Uh, believers die. Uh, we all, unless the Lord comes, will face that uh, ultimate reality. So how do we, how do we justify this, or how do we interpret this verse? It's an absolute. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. And of course, the context is important. Uh, it's been said that a te text taken out of context can become a pretext, uh, and many people will take verses like this out of this context and use it to promote something else. But here, the context has to do with sin and confession of sin. And so why would the sick one call the elders of the church? And why would he say in verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another? But I think the illustration of Elijah helps us as well. When Elijah prayed that it would not rain, why did he pray that? It was a judgment on Israel. There was sin. And so as a result of Ahab's, Jezebel's sin, Elijah's prayer was that God would, would bring discipline, and God did. And then he prayed again, and it did rain. When did he pray? After the people said, the Lord, he is God. After the event at Mount Carmel, uh, when the Lord dealt uh, with the worship of Baal, the death of those 450 priests of Baal, uh, then Elijah prayed and the land was healed. So I would suggest that here the prayer of faith is in regard to one who is sick under the disciplined hand of God. Now, we get sick because of being a, uh, part of a fallen race. We get sick because of environment. We get sick of many because of many reasons. But it is possible that believers are made sick because of God and his intervention. We read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For this reason... Many are sick, and some even have died among you. And the Lord chastens the one he loves. And so it's possible that there could be a sickness that is the consequence, the result of sin in a life. And when that is recognized and confessed, and I think that's when the elders of the church would be called, and the anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. You know, some people, again, take that verse out of this context. I don't think there's anything wrong in calling uh, elders to pray with those who are sick. But you can't uh, continue in the context with the next verse saying that the Lord will raise them up. 
But the promise is that when the sickness is due to sin and confession is made, then the prayer of faith, we can claim in faith that the Lord will raise the person up. The Lord is disciplined and the Lord has caused the sickness and the Lord will bring healing. And so uh, the prayer of faith, do we believe that? Yes, we can believe it because God states it here in his, in his word. So there's a challenge for us. I think as you read the book of James, we'll see other evidences where faith uh, should be shown. If you look at the end of chapter four, for instance, we make plans, but do we do it in faith? Do we acknowledge that it's only if the Lord will? Do we uh, see his sovereign hand and purposes in these, in these things? So I trust that uh, you'll be encouraged, but also that we'd all be challenged just to look at our, our life and see is there evidence of faith? Is my faith being demonstrated. We're saved by faith, but it's a faith that should be seen as well. We read in Hebrews 11, verse 6, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so we should exercise faith in our, in our life. I'm just going to maybe ask, uh, Billy, can you close our time in a word of prayer? Please, thank you. Father in heaven, thank you again for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you, Father, for that word. We thank you that we have that, Father, as our guide, as we've been encouraged this evening. We can examine our own faith, and we can question, Father, were we to be uh, taken before a court of law and accused of being a Christian, would there be sufficient evidence to convict us? For the things that we do in our life demonstrate that our faith is in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that we would indeed realize we've been treating in Christ Jesus unto good works, and that, Father, these would just be an evidence of the things that are reality in our lives. We ask thy hand upon the, uh, the word that's gone out. We know it won't come back void. We ask your blessing as we part. We think of the uh, blooms that are, that are time down here. We just ask your hand upon it. We can commit John to you once again. The uh, physical uh, needs, we commit our brother Lucas Richard, and the needs still there, the surgeries hopefully still to come uh, to relieve those problems as well. We think we would ask in our Savior's name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.